This is the Designing the Revolution series and you're listening to chapter 14 part 1 which is called Framing Communication and Media. So this is going to be the third initial sort of section of these of these podcasts. Um, if you've been listening to them all, you'll know that we sort of got stuck into stuff talking about mobilisation and sociability and proximity. And then we've moved on to looking at how those principles apply to the area of action and civil disobedience and what have you. And in this third two uh, chapters or part one and part two, we're going to be looking at media and communication. And after that, I'm going to try and bring it all together under the heading of organisation, how to coordinate and manage these processes to bring about the structural transformation that this series is all about. Okay, so these two, these two episodes, part one and part two, they're still going to have this theme in the background and this theme is going to be carrying on right through this series which is this juxtaposition for a, of a sociability, modern 21st century view of human nature, how people think, how people feel, how they communicate and then this old ideology Someone told me yesterday it was a 20th century way of looking at things. Um, and underlying this, obviously, is this theme of reform. Reform has a very specific logic to it, and revolution has a very specific logic to it. So in some ways, it's a continuation of, of, of these themes. Um, the other thing to say is I'm going to be talking about communication in the context of media interviews and what have you. And this is very much the first bite of the cherry. I'm going to revisit how this design works, I think, uh, later on in the series. But we're just going to have a sort of go at it in these two, in these two episodes. OK, the other thing to say is I, I have been separating theory and practice, but I'm going to sort of mix it up for some reason. I don't quite, haven't quite decided why I'm doing that, but I am. So we'll see how we get on as usual. All right, so let's look at this reformist, gradualist, conventional view of how, how people approach framing communication in the media, interviews and all the such, such like. So a good place to start, of course, is to return to a fundamental observation that on the combating of the neoliberal project, if you want to call it that, over the last 30 years, in relation to putting carbon into the atmosphere, there's been 30 years of catastrophic failure. Um, CO2 has gone up by 60%. That's a key stat. And obviously, there's a whole bunch of other terrible things that have gone along with it. The other thing to say is that I've done about, I don't know how many I've done to be honest, but I'm sure it's getting on for a hundred interviews with various newspapers and, you know, online shows and, and all the rest of it. And one of the things which I've sort of mentioned, if you've seen some of these YouTube uh, videos, is one of the things I say in, in when I'm talking to people, when I'm talking to these journalists is, they're not emotionally connecting with the reality of what's going on, which, of course, on one level is understandable because we're all human and we don't like to look at terrible things. But on another, on another level, there's something more sinister going on, which is just a refusal to accept responsibility and what you might call professionalism. Um, so these two things are connected, which is the media is a key element a key element of this ecology of failure that we've witnessed for the last 30 years. There's other elements of it, obviously, there's economics and there's, you know, culture and what have you, but the, the space of the interview is a primary site, as you might say, that perpetuates this cat catastrophic failure uh, situation. 
something else which is going on, I'm just broad, broadly thinking about a few themes here. Another thing that's going on is, and we, I think we've touched on this, is the situation we're putting carbon into the atmosphere, this DEF project, notice I'm not using climate change, <laughs> um, is that it has this progression to it, doesn't it? So for the sake of argument in the 1990s, it was quite bad and reform could have sorted it out and and the thing that goes along with those that sort of reform orientation is nice sensible technocratic interviews and with experts saying well we just need to do this um, and then in the 2000s up to 2010 it gets more fraught objectively between 2010 2020 it turns into the massive catastrophe that is now locked in and there's this notion, again, which I may have mentioned, called cultural lag in sociology, which means that the culture always sort of has this inertia and it, it's always like 10 years, for the sake of argument, behind the actual objective reality of what's going on. So one of the reasons for this failure is this reformist orientation is sort of locked in, it's inert, but it's also behind the times in the sense that... Um, there was there was a problem and then there was a big problem and then there's a catastrophe and it's always like one stage behind so that's one way of looking upon it but a deeper orientation is to say that regardless of this cultural lag what's been going on is is our old theme right this theme we've been developing throughout this series which is this addiction to a sort of enlightenment rationalism and this, this supposed rationalism uh, manifests itself in an addiction to the supposed power of information and the supposed power of facts. And underlying that is this computer model of, of human nature that the human <laughs> takes in information, calculates whether it's useful or not, and then makes a decision. So we've dealt with all this several times. So suffice to say, that's not how human nature works. And there's overwhelming empirical evidence that it doesn't work. But the people that control the media, both the people who, um, you know, actually run the media and the NGO space and all these sensible climate campaigners, they're all from the same cultural class ideological enlightenment space. Another element here is this notion of first movers. So when you, when you get the beginnings of a movement or the beginnings of a process of social change, you have these first movers. The first movers are people who are a bit quirky, a bit nerdy, and tend to be more addicted to this enlightenment nonsense, as you might say. So they think that, yes, it's all about information. It's all about facts. It's getting your point across. And they assume, like a lot of first movers and nerdy people, you know, well, we all assume that everyone else is like us, which obviously is not the case. Uh, most people are second or third movers, i.e. they come along when it gets more entertaining, more human, and uh, there's more going on than just this dry computer type of communication. So there's an element here of what we've talked about before of, of, of the paradox of political identity, that activists and, and social change agents, as it were, they become overbonded and they think everyone's like them and they're, they're the only people that they talk to and they just don't get out of the box. You know, they don't have a life, dare I say it, in that sort of sense. And we looked at this in, in the action phase, didn't we, with the design of a leaflet. You know, this is my, this is a great leaflet because I think it looks great, but 99% of the population is turned off by it. All right, so this creates like this sort of bubble. And so if you watch like Newsnight, or if you watch like on Sky, Sky uh, News, which I watched a lot in, in jail, dare I say it, and they have this climate section in Sky, in the Sky climate section, I don't know what it's called. Anyway, 
all of the mainstream, all the mainstream media likes to create this pretense of technocratic, problem-solving, minutiae, out-of-context orientation with people talking about it as if they were talking about some sort of maths problem. So a fourth element of it, and all these elements are mixed up obviously, a fourth, a fourth element is, is this emotional connection I just talked about. So it's not just that people in this space have a sort of ideology as such, you know, a system of ideas. There's also a psychology to it, which is, which is people simply don't want to emote, right? You know, like this is more of a Freudian point, which is something terrible happening. And the more terrible it is, the more you pretend that it's, it's just a technical thing. So this manifests itself primarily through euphemisms. Um, so the euphemism, what we have to understand is the euphemism is not objective communication. The euphemism from a Freudian-esque sort of point of view is basically a manifestation of repression. There's nothing objective or foundational. So in the context of media communication, when someone from an NGO, you know, Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth, sort of comes onto a show or gets interviewed and, and says, yes, you know, it's very unfortunate that the IPCC has been ignored again and we need more ambition. Basically, that's euphemistic. And, you know, what they really should be saying is, fucking hell, <laughs> I'm so fucked off that we're still here after 30 years. And we'll come on to the ins and outs of that sort of communication in a minute. But that's what they might really want to say, right? When they're talking to their partner and they're going to say, what the fuck? You know, I was on, I was on this news night again and we were just ignored and all this sort of thing. And we don't want to talk about this in great detail, but hopefully you can see that the whole of this science communication has no objectivity to it at all in the sense that the facts are, tr are translated into a social context which becomes suppressing, is repressed, and perpetuates the ideology of the neoliberal regime in so much as it pretends that something that something that is objectively massively emotional and objectively massively immoral and unjust is just a maths problem, is just an engineering problem. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why science has a bad press, right, in terms of ordinary people, non-university educated people for the sake of argument, because they know that it's a form of control, um, broadly speaking. Okay, so just to sum up this section, what, what we're saying is, is the reformist paradigm in, in the space of communication, in the space of the media, is an ideological, is an ideological construction. It's a system of ideas. It's a certain psychology of repression. It's a fusion of these two things. And it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. So we talked in the last episode, I think, about, you know, the structure of scientific revolutions, the structure of, of, of revolutions of ideas, where a certain approach is insisted upon, and then over a course of years, it becomes self-evidently unempirical. It just it doesn't say what it says on the tin. In other words, the whole reformist space is adamant that if you pursue this technocratic approach, then you'll, you'll make the public realise what's happening and you'll change the government. No, you won't, because we've had 30 years of empirical evidence that it's catastrophically failed. Um, it doesn't work. All right, so what I'm going to do uh, for the rest of these two talks is, is, is primarily look at free context. I'm going to be looking at the popular, popularist or mainstream interview where you just asked all these ridiculous questions and how, how you respond to that. Um, then I'm going to look at more like 
debate context where you have a chance to actually make an argument, as I will go into. And then finally, I'm going to look at how to speak to right-wing spaces, like right-wing sort of podcasts or uh, YouTube channel type stuff. And this isn't, this isn't exhaustive, okay? I'm just giving a flavour of a new paradigm of approaching communication, which is connected with this new paradigm, which relates to action and, and uh, mobilisation. So it's not the final word on the matter and uh, gives you a flavour of where we're going on this area. All right, so what I'm going to look at first is, um, is, I'm going to call it popularist. I mean, that's a little bit of a problem for word, but it's, there's a whole bunch of radio stations and uh, YouTube channels and what have you where They'll have you on for two or three minutes or maybe 10 minutes, maybe even 15 or 20 minutes sometimes. And they're just going to be giving you a hard time, right? And I'll go into more of this in a minute. But also this sort of culture is now pervades like the BBC uh, and mainstream media, mainstream corporate media. And what I want to suggest is, is that the whole how we need to understand these spaces is has nothing to do with information, nothing to do with argument as such. What they're about is a game of wits. It's a game, okay? What a game is, is means there's two sides and there's rules of that game. And one of the rules is to try and get you to follow other rules which don't work. So, and it's all about confidence, it's all about being witty, it's all about ridiculing each other, and it's, the fundamental logic is entertainment. Now, as a little aside, what I want to maybe challenge some of you listening to this, you might be saying, oh yeah, I know that, Roger, isn't it terrible? You know, these right-wing people, these popular shows, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I want to sort of suggest that this is a certain reflection of a distorted form of the desire for sociability. So if you remember, sociability is not facts and figures. What sociability is, is the interaction of human beings in the social space. And a key part of that is, is humour, gossip, wit. In other words, it's enchanted, it's full, it's talking to your mates down the pub, it's watching the telly late at night, it's this conversational, you know, half-jokey sort of thing that everyone loves to do when they're not in front of camera <laughs> and all that stuff. And what I'm saying is, is what these spaces do is they, they, are, they are providing, um, they're responding to this intrinsic need for sociability in a varying degrees of a distorted way. So we shouldn't see it as, as fundamentally bad, right? Because we should also be aware that how people talk on our side, as you might say, or what used to be called our side, i.e. the reformist, rationalist, university educated, you know, expert space, is similarly distorted because it goes to the other extreme, which is reductive, and sensible and unemotional uh, and such like. And this, that form of communication, as I've just argued, is equally distorted and equally untrue in the deeper sense of what truth is. So how we want to frame ourselves within this sociability revolution sort of space is, is the both a fact, right? It's like they're both mirror reflections of each other in this broader culture war and they obviously feed off each other, you know, those stupid university professors, they don't know what real life is. All oh, those populist people that distort and tell lies on popular media. It's like, it's, it's functional for each side to polarise and engage in othering. So let's sort of move towards what's actually happening in these interviews. So... One thing to say, which might sound a bit unusual, is 
when these interviewers are interviewing you, and I've been in quite a lot of interviews, what it, you have this moment of truth when you realise they don't actually give a damn about what they're saying. They're professional winder-uppers. That's their job. So one of the reasons I know this is because you can have this terrible interview and this guy's throwing all sorts of nonsense at you. And then at the end of it, he's quite, che he's quite cheerful. He's just going, oh, thanks very much, Roger. And you realise it was just all a show. Um, in other words, like it's non-moral. And what it's all about is, as I said, you know, emotion, novelty, getting, you know, attracting attention, basically putting on a show. And the reason they do that, of course, is because that's what gets clicks. That's what, that's why people watch it. People can't really help themselves. People are, you know, addicted to drama. They like this stuff. They're, they're not bothered whether you give them a hard time. In some ways, if you give them a hard time, then it's more of a fruity sort of interview and they're quite pleased with themselves. All right, so let's just dive in and look at some ways in which you can deal with this battle of wits. Um, all right, so we talked about this a little bit, which is as soon as someone asks you a question, they've already pre-framed all your possible rational answers as supporting their argument. Okay. Let's take an extreme example. If, um, if an interviewer says to you, are you, are you just a dickhead or are you just stupid? Right? So let's say, you know, Roger, are you just being stupid or are you a dickhead? I mean, both of those things mean the same thing. But anyway, who cares, right? It's just like a provocation. So obviously, if you say, well, you know, I think on balance, I'm probably a bit stupid. Obviously, he's already won because he's preframed the, he's preframed the answers. And this is what uh, interviewers will do. They spend all day doing it. They can do it in their sleep, right? Um, I mean, as a little aside, you know, I used to do lots of sales work. And if you do 10,000 hours of this stuff, there's nothing a person's going to say that's going to throw you off because you've heard every single routine, every single response. So they're probably thinking, when they're interviewing you, that this might be an exaggeration, but they're probably thinking what they're going to have for dinner, where, what, where they're going out that evening, because they do it all day. <laughs> and they're just going to throw shit at you. And, and if you're stupid enough to respond to it, then, you know, all, all to the best. And then they're just going to grind you down, as you might say. So the key fundamental structural response to this is what's called a turnaround, which is you go, they go, you know, you know, are you just really, really nasty person or are you being stupid? Let's say that. And you go, well, you know, that's a really interesting question and I can see you're upset about, you know, what I'm saying here. And the real situation we need to talk about is blah, 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 blah. Okay, so a lot of people who do media training will not be familiar with this. So just to iterate again, like what's happening here is the question is not a question, okay? He's not asking a question. He's, he's trying to wind you up so he can make you look stupid so he can get more clicks, okay? So you, the fundamental thing to understand here is that you're not being impolite by not asking, uh, answering the question. And obviously, when you don't answer the question, you can introduce your own frame. So you can say, right, well, what we're talking about here is basically the greatest crime in the history of humanity. And anyone who's got any sense can see that. And blah, 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 right? Um, and then that can get developed into asking a question back. So I'm, I haven't really thought about examples for this, this episode, but... So you have a little turnaround phrase like, okay, so it's the climate, you know, the climate is the biggest crime in the history of humanity. What, what do you think your children think about it? Jack. So the interview is called Jack. Use his name, ask a question back. And he's going, you know, he'll do this 
this uh, constructed rage, you know, I am asking the questions, you're not answering the questions, and because you're being nice and middle class maybe, you've got, oh yes, all right, I'll answer the question. No, 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 right, you just don't answer the question. <laughs> and what you then go is like, but you're not, and you're not answering my question, you're not answering my question. And you just keep going, and after about 30 seconds, he's gonna give up on that line because he's not getting anywhere. So then, you, then you've won, you've won your little battle of wits. And what people do, of course, is they come back and then, and then the guy comes, you know, basically guilt trips you and says, you know, you've got to answer my question. And then you don't, you, you, you give in. Well, the name of the game with these, with these guys is to get, go, no, no, you answer my question. You answer my question. You know, you answer my question. You say, you answer my question 10 times and he'll give up. <laughs> um, or just change the subject. So one of the co-founders of XR, she probably might be watching this. Uh, so she was in an interview and I've forgotten what it was. I think the guy was, it probably sounds right anyway. I think what the guy was going was going, um, so you've got, a, you've got a diesel car. Why have you got a diesel car? You're supposed to be a climate protester. Isn't that like really stupid and hypocritical? And then she was going, yeah, she was being rationalist. She was going, well, the reason I've got a diesel car is I need to take my children to, to uh, school, you know, and I need to do this. And this is, you know, she's trying to be reasonable and enlightenment about it. What she should have said is, let's call this guy Jack. You know, she should have said, uh, Jack, you know, you've got something on your tie. <laughs> so you can have a lot of fun with this. And he's going to go, what? And obviously he's going to look at his tie. So you're like broken up his, his, um, bro broken up his, um, his plan, right? In, in the Battle of Wits. Now, because this co-founder was trying to be all rationalist, he was going fantastic. He was, he was thinking about what he's going to have for tea. And he just asked the question about 10 times. So whatever, what, wherever this person said, he was just going to ask the same question. He was going, yeah, 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 but you've got, you've got a diesel car. I mean, how the hell can you have a diesel? I don't care. You've still got a diesel car. Yeah, you've got to take your kids to school, but you've got a diesel car. You're such a fucking hypocrite. <laughs> and this, this co-founder was going, Ugh. like, you know, she should have done something interesting, like go, you know, oh, you're a bit of a twat, aren't you? And then walked off. <laughs> because it's like, it's a battle of the wits. It's playground stuff, right? Um, so there's a whole bunch of things and we might look into these in more detail, but fundamentally what a battle of wits is about is about confidence. And confidence is not about what you say. Confidence is about um, how you come across. So it's not what you say, it's how you say it. What does that mean? So this is one of the things a lot of people don't realize is they get persuaded. You find yourself being persuaded by someone, not because of what they're saying. I mean, a little bit, obviously, right? We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as you know, right? Facts do have their place and all the rest of it. But fundamentally, you, your, your cognitive system, for want of a better word, is taking on, for the sake of argument, like 20 different bits of data stroke stimuli all the time. You know, it's like, you're watching this and a little bit of your a little bit of your brain's going oh roger's got a different jumper on <laughs> you know because dare i say it like i've got a bit of my breakfast down my proper jumpers so i've changed it before this show and you see this sort of thing ha happening all the time you know you can look in the comments on youtube uh, in interviews and you know about a quarter of the comments are about weird little quirks you know the guy's ties out of place this is what human beings do we, we love all this sort of stuff you know, it's a sociability world. Okay, so, so one, 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 one of the elements of this is, is, well, there's several different elements, right? There's pausing, there's tone, there's changing tone, and there's pace, and there's changing pace. And there's no point like trying to micro-design this. It's all about practice, it's all about confidence, it's all about charisma, it's all about like whether you're relaxed. And if you're relaxed, you'll talk in, in lots of different, paces. So an example of this 
I think this is a good example, maybe it isn't. But when I watch Martin Luther King on YouTube, dare I say it, well, my little habits, yeah, watch his whole, watch his whole speech. And the thing about Martin Luther King is, is the main reason he was a great orator wasn't because, you know, it was partially because he was saying great stuff, it was partially because he was using, you know, pictures, words and analogies and stories and all this sort of thing. But it was also because he had this like singing pace. And maybe I'm a bit peculiar, but for me, after about, you know, 20, 30 seconds, I'm half in a, I'm, I'm, feel, I'm already feeling emotional. I'm feeling like I want to cry or something. It's ridiculous in, in one sense because it's just got this intensity of tone and pace and his pauses and you don't quite realise what's going on. But if you watch one of his, you know, watch this and this all comes, of course, from the sort of gospel rhetoric tradition, you know, the preacher and the pulpit and how he speaks and it's a, it's a big performance, isn't it? Um, all right, so, so that's quite challenging, you know. A lot of people find this really challenging who are from this university-educated, rationalist, middle-class Western routine tradition. But, you know, my proposition to you is we're supposed to be empirical, right, on this show. Sure, calling it a show now. <laughs> what we're supposed to be doing is, does it work, right? And what I'm going to be arguing is, and I'll give an example at the end, um, yeah, it does work. And, um, and being sensible doesn't. All right. So let's take it in, in an even more outrageous direction. So this is, this interview, we need to look at the interview space as a site of action, as I said. So this is a continuation of the action episodes. When you're going into the interview, if you remember, you know, the, the whole plan here is to get attention. If you don't get attention, if you don't show you've got something to say, hello, I'm here, you know, this is me, <laughs> then you're not even on the foothills of persuading people. And if you remember, number one, people have to get you know, you need to get their attention. Number two is you've got to, you're going to end up pissing them off in order to get their attention. And through getting their attention and pissing them off, you're going to actually go, get them to go, you know, I don't really like him, but, you know, I don't really like what he's saying, but I quite, I quite like, you know, I actually quite like him. <laughs> you know, Roger's got crap, crap ideas, but, you know, I think he's quite cool. Maybe, maybe not, you know. Uh, and then you've got this, this progression towards the point where they go, actually, he's right as well, dare I say it. Um, all right, so let's look at taking it to another level. Okay, so this is doing action, actually action. So we talked about how you speak and the tone and the pace and the turnarounds and the wind-ups and the comebacks and all this stuff. Action. You do something. Action is a thousand words, right? So, you know, the classic sort of, <laughs> the classic scenario here is you go into the interview and you glue yourself to the table, which has become a bit of a cliche because if you do do these interviews nowadays, you know, some producers will say, you're not going to glue yourself to the table, are you? But it doesn't matter whether you're gluing yourself or you don't glue yourself. The point is, is some transgressive action in the interview is going to, make the likelihood of a million, two million, five million people watch it, as opposed to 20,000 or 2,000 or 5,000. So maybe you get on the table, for instance, right? Maybe you take your clothes off. Uh, maybe you start crying. Maybe you start shouting, you know. Maybe you tell a joke. Maybe you walk out. Maybe you walk out and you come back in and then you walk out. Maybe you, maybe you go and sit on his desk and refuse to move, right? Maybe you glue yourself to the camera. All these things, <laughs> All these things have been done, right, before 1989, before the neoliberal period where everyone started being sensible. Mad things happened because people were pissed off and they didn't give a shit, right, about what the establishment and the professionalisation of the public space meant. 
so again, uh, the problem with doing these episodes is I can't actually remember what I've said and what I haven't said. But um, so if I've said this before, I'm just going to say it again. So in 1968, if you watch the film The Chicago Seven, um, it's not, I'm not actually shown on this film, but I read I read stuff about this this trial. And in this trial, again, trial was a site of action, okay? And people did somersaults, right, before in front of the judge. And, you know, it's a big show trial. Ostensibly, it was all rational, but it wasn't, right? It was a show's trial. It was like sewn up. They, you know, they messed about with the jury and all the rest of it. Um, and doing the somersaults was was a appropriation of the site of of emotional repression and genocidal um, euphemism, right? So the whole site is fucked. So why not do a somersault in front of, you know, the interviewer on, on, you know, Good Morning Britain? Because what Good Morning Britain does, and not giving them a hard time, just, you know, they're just, they, they're an example of entertainment. It's in the morning, people are eating their Rice Krispies, and they want to produce this, we're in control of the world and there's these entertaining activists who are a bit silly, we're going to have them on the show, ridicule them a little bit, and then, you know, send them packing, and that's the end of that, that little bit of nonsense. All right, so if you want to see an example of this, um, well, it sort of fuses it, is you can look at a Russell Brand interview, maybe his earlier interviews. So there's this interview where, um, if I can find it, I'll put it on the bottom of the episode. But there's this interview where he's promoting his show. So he's promoting his show and all the rationalists in you are probably sublimely thinking, oh, he goes on to tell people about his show. He gives information, he gives facts and he gives arguments, right? No, he doesn't. <laughs> what he does is on the show and it's some corporate woman who's, I think she's the daughter of a billionaire or something. So she's just been, you know, got no amazing talent or anything. She's just there because she's in that scene. Anyway, so she's trying to make these little entertaining points about Russell Brand. And then Russell Brand goes, uh, what's those, what's, what are those people doing over there? You see, like, this is an interruption, change the subject, uh, turn around. What's those people doing over there? So, you know, these corporate um, news channels, they've got people in the background typing on computers. And, you know, the whole idea is that gives an ambience of professionalism and, you know, elite mystique, as you might say. So Russell Brand goes, uh, what are those guys doing over there? And she's, she doesn't really know. And he says, oh, they're probably watching pornography. <laughs> and the, the, woman, the woman's like thrown off balance, right? So again, this is what happens in a game of wits. The whole idea is you throw off balance the other guy. Now, he probably just made that up. And then he, he said something else of some sort of sexual sort of con ambience, as you might say, to how she was holding a bottle or something. Within about 30 seconds a minute, he's in control of the interview. And what he does is, is once she's off balance, he's going wallop, 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 like, you know, this way, this way, this way. She doesn't really know what's going on. And at the end, within about a minute, he's, he, he's controlling the interview. And he's, he's talking about all sorts of things he wants to talk about, none of which are his show, right? <clears throat> so why is that empirically effective? It's because instead of getting, you know, 100,000, 1 million people watching him. He's got 50 million people watching him because it goes on YouTube and everyone's going, it's so funny. And obviously that means he's more well-known. It means everyone's going to go, oh, I'm going to look up about Russell Brand and now I'm going to go to his show. You see what I mean? So empirically, not telling people about his show is actually loads more effective by being entertaining and witty. And, and you know, there's a Freudian-esque element to this, of course, which is, He's alluding to sex, he's alluding to death, he's alluding to, you know, shit, whatever he's alluding to, which is what comedians do all the time. And one of the reasons comedians are so popular. All right, so 
you might be saying, right, this is really difficult, Roger, you know, I really can't do this, going on Newsnight, you know, <laughs> and kissing the interview. What did Russell Brand do on Newsnight? He touched the knee of, uh, what's that guy called? Hello? What's the guy? <laughs> oh, I can't remember the guy. Someone will know. What's that news guy, Newsnight guy called who um, used to be, do the interviews? Anyway, I'm sure some, some of you know. Anyway, I was on this interview and it was a famous interview and you were this guy who was great at these provocative questions and dominating interviews. And he just stretched over and said, and touched the knee of the guy and then spoke to him. And obviously the touching of the knee became super famous. Um, all fun stuff. All right, so why is this really difficult and not difficult in, at all? It's not difficult at all because when you're talking to your mates, when you're, you know, sitting in front of the telly or you're just having a formal conversation, you're already in the Russell Brand mode. You're already in the witty sociability mode. What happens is, is when people put you in front of the media, you suddenly take on this corporate response frame. You need, think you need to wear something posh and you need to talk in a certain way. And it's like going to see the headmaster, right? <laughs> at school. Um, and the people that are best at doing interviews, in my humble opinion, as it were, are people that don't really care. Uh, more like working class people. They're no good. They're no good at doing interviews. And that makes them really good at doing interviews because they're all scrappy and they're all over the place. And if someone, you know, if an interview gives them a hard time, they're just going to give them a hard time back because that's what, you know, broadly speaking, working class life is all about, right? People give you shit, you give people shit back. Um, and that's why they're good. That's why they, they're good at interviews. Uh, haven't had that sort of thing knocked out of them by this whole, you know, university culture routine. The other, the other why it's really hard is, 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 if you haven't got that natural ability, that natural ability hasn't been knocked out of you, then you're going to have to try really hard and you're going to have to role play it like 50 times. I'm not exaggerating. You need to get, have someone sitting with you and over and over again until you get really pissed off and you lose some pretense of being professional and you just start telling them they're a shit or something. And, um, and you just lose that, that, that hardness, as you might say. So those are the two ways to get to this stage where you can go into, into the interview in the same way as you do civil disobedience training, right? You know, people are going to be shouting at you on the street and you practice, you role play going, oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, summarise what they say and, and all the rest of it. All right, so I'm just going to end this, end this part one. I'm going to do the other bits in part two. So I'm going to finish this part one by by giving you an example it's not necessarily the best example it sort of identifies certain certain elements I've been talking about so I went on this um, right-wing chat show news channel whatever it's called I don't know called GB news and some of you might know about it so this was at the beginning of it at the beginning of it they got quite a lot of views I dare I say it, they don't get that many views anymore but um, uh, but he had a really well-known presenter whose name I've forgotten, of course. But he um, he interviewed me. So this interview has been on, he's been on mainstream TV for what thirty years. He's a total expert at his trade. And what he what he wanted to do was ridicule me and draw out things that are just pushing me off balance and get into some sort of confrontation and he knew that if he was in some confrontation number one is getting more attention and number two is he can control the interview you know oh this is you know this is ridiculous do you think about this what do you think about that don't don't you think this is ridiculous you know isn't that stupid you know you don't know anything I'm I'm the establishment I I'm the main guy I'm the realist all this sort of stuff Okay, so I had this epiphany before I went into, into, into the interview that I was just going to relax, right? I mean, the world's fucked. I'm just going to tell him the world's fucked and he can do whatever he likes, right? I really don't mind what this guy does because I'm not going to argue with him. 
It's like, you're either going to accept the world's fact or you're not. And I'm going to give him one or two facts. And if he can't handle it, I'm just going to say, well, there we go. You know, it's your life. You know, this guy's 70. He's going to be dead soon anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so there was this little interaction in it. And, you know, on these right wing mainstream shows, they're going to pick, they're going to cherry pick something about you. And whatever you've done in your life or said, they're going to find something. And even if they can't find something, they're going to make it up or distort it. So he said something like, so Roger, um, you know, what you really want to do is destroy our society and freedom. You're going to destroy freedom. And you're, you've got this stupid idea that 90% of property is going to have to be collectivized in this left-wing communist revolution nonsense. I mean, he didn't quite put it like that, but that's basically what he was saying. And I said, words to the effect of, yeah, 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 90% of property probably will or could be socialised. I think that's probably a good prediction. And he said, so he was thrown off balance because he expected me to be all defensive about it and go, well, you know, I'm sure that's not going to happen and all this sort of thing. And then he'd go, yes, it is because you've said so. And we really know what you're thinking and all this sort of thing. And when I, when I agreed with him, I'm going to talk about this in the next part, uh, next part. When I agreed with him, he was thrown off balance. Like it was, you know, if you know the word jujitsu, that's basically what jujitsu means is you step aside. I'm not actually going to confrontation with him. Um, and then he said, I remember him going, so, so, you would collectivise all this, all this property? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, yes. And I said, yes. And the point is, that sort of epitomises this paradigm shift, right? The, the liberal, professional, you know, fact-based paradigm, and lots of people from that paradigm criticised the interview, said, no, you should be arguing about it. But if I argued about it, he would have won the interaction. I won the battle of wits because he lost. He lost that interaction because he was thrown off balance because he wasn't expecting it. And interestingly enough, and the reason I give this example is that um, 500,000 people watched this interview, dare I say it. And the reason was because it had the entertainment value of having some dickhead on it saying we're basically facing the end of the world. Now for rationalists that's terrible because we're not facing the end of the world. Well we sort of are but we're not definitely, right? But for me like, and empirically I would argue, that got 500,000 people to think about the end of the world, right? You, you caught the attention. So it doesn't really matter that it was technically wrong in various areas. You, you, you got the name out, you know, Insulate Britain or whatever it was. People were talking about it. People were saying how shit you were. And that's the first step towards social change, as we've discussed. Um, and just as a little aside, you know, people, I know people criticise this episode because they'll go, well, Roger, you are basically not telling the truth there. So this word truth, and we're going to revisit this a few times, this word truth, right? We need to have a nuanced analysis of this, right? We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say there's no objective truth in some extreme postmodernist way. However, we do need to be sophisticated enough to understand that, like, truth is when I'm in that interview, what I'm the truth I'm conveying is my confidence in what I believe. And the confidence is not verbal, right? It's multifaceted. In other words, whether we're formally going to have to um, collectivise 90% of property, yeah, it has a certain like, gravity to it, reality to it, but it's not the main show. The main show is, is that we're discussing the end of the world in, with, with some confidence. Um, and then, you know, People that criticise this episode will go, no, 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 you know, we've got to do facts and figures stuff. And I'm going to argue that when you give a fact, that's not, that's not objectively the truth either, because a fact is part of an ecology of facts, right? 
And the fact, saying one fact, requires other facts to verify it. And if you say one fact, it's a distortion of the truth because you haven't got all the other facts around it. Um, and of course, the fact that you select is likely to be a fact that's socially produced in the sense it's a fact that supports the neoliberal reformist paradigm. So let me give you an example. So this week I was reading this article about the IPCC. So what the IPCC does is, is you know, it's, it's a reformist, you know, deaf project, project paradigm space. In other words, you know, Saudi Arabia, as you probably know, and Russia, they all have a veto on it. So we've already talked about, you know, the very word climate change. That's not a fact. Climate change isn't a fact. It's a social construction. Okay. Um, another social construction is the carbon budget. So you think, no, the carbon budget is a fact. No, it's not. It's a, it's a political construction. Why is it a political construction? Because the carbon budget behind the notion of a budget is the notion of risk. And behind the notion of risk is the ability to actually be, you know, there's different philosophies of risk, as you might say. So in this article, it said that the budget, the carbon budget for us to stay within two degrees centigrade gives a 50% chance of staying below two degrees and a 10% chance of going over four degrees, i.e. half the world un, uh, uninhabitable. And the article was making this massive point, of course, which is that there's no other risk assessment space in society that would use the, a carbon budget like that because it's, you just don't entertain catastrophic risks of 10%, right, with bridges and aeroplanes. You see what I mean? So when your nice university lecturer goes on Newsnight and says, well, we need to stay within this budget uh, to stay below, two, to stay below two degrees, that's not the truth. That's a political construction because there's only a 50% chance of staying on the two degrees and there's a 10% chance of it being game, game over. It's saturated with the perversion of, of the of the death project logic, which is, you know, losing 4 billion people is sort of acceptable. You <laughs> know, 10% chance. It's pure bollocks, right? So the people who promote the fact-based paradigm, they need to have a little bit more humility about popularism, right, and the popular show. Um, no, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but we're getting some sophistication about how the world works. All right, so in summary, what we're doing here, what the revolutionary paradigm is, is to say to all the elite uh, rationalist elite, you know, people is, thanks very much, but we don't need you in our media groups. Uh, we don't need that, that orientation. What we're going to do is do confidence-based communication. All right, so actually it's quite, yeah, it's quite full on stuff, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so in the next in the next part, I'm going to talk about um, yeah, I'm going to talk about longer debate form communication, and I'm going to talk about um, being in right wing spaces, which are longer form, like interviews, uh, the right wing chat shows, which have you know 40, 50 minutes to make your case. All right. That's it. I'll um, I'll see you on the next time. Thanks.